0: Because we are living in a chemical world, and I'm a chemical nondescript person. We are living in a chemical world, and I am a chemical girl. We are living in a chemical world, and I am a chemical girl or boy. We are living in a chemical world, and I am a chemical.
1: Hello, and welcome to Chemical World. I am Kenna Crampton, membership director at KDK Community Radio.
2: And I'm Maggie Saldine, founder and director of High Rockies Harm Reduction. And happy 2022, everyone. We made it through another one. (laughs) Let's hope so. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I can't believe it's
1: 2022. It feels like just yesterday. It was the beginning of 2020.
2: Yeah, I still feel like it's June 2020, like perpetually, I feel, (laughs) but I have a lot of hope for 2022. And I know it's, yeah, definitely been a rough couple of years for everyone out there. But I think that there's a lot of positive change coming and a lot of good reasons to be optimistic about the future.
1: Yeah. And of course, as hard as the last couple of years have been, there's a lot of silver linings as well with, you know, just the idea of what's important in our lives have kind of come to light with this pandemic and everything, I think, so.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I also just believe, um, you know, times of great hardship create great change. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's definitely pros and cons to all of it. Yeah.
1: Of course, we're saying this as two white women who live in America, <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> in rural, in
2: a rural, wealthy community. So, yeah, so. we know, and we've been <laughs> extremely lucky. And I, I just, you know, even rural America, I feel like, was... I mean, it's interesting because it's a different experience, right? I mean, most of us living in rural communities already know what it's like when passes close and trucks can't, you know, bring you merchandise. But I think for it to be kind of this... um, you know, lag on import export for so long that everyone's experiencing it. But I do feel like we've been kind of protected from from a lot of the stuff going on the past few years, just by by living in a small town, we're definitely not immune to all of it, but very grateful to live where we do. Totally. So just want (laughs) I wanted to throw that disclaimer out there. Because like,
1: oh, life is good. But that's also um, our perspective. And our, our experiences. so
2: Well, and, you know, we can sometimes appreciate things more if we've had really hard experiences too. So we definitely haven't been without tragedy in our circle over the past couple of years. But I saw this great um, meme the other day that was like positive things about people with depression. And one of my favorites was they lift other people up because they know what it's like to feel worthless. Because mm-hmm. I definitely feel that. I de- that's something I've walked through life trying to do is like say nice th- truths about people whenever you can, because there's so much tearing down we do of each other that like mm. any opportunity to lift each other up, especially women. Um, and it was also, you know, that another one of the benefits of people with depression is they can enjoy things more be, like they can appreciate littler things in life because of just um that experience of having depression. And if you've never experienced depression, you might not understand what I'm talking about. And if you have experienced depression, you're just like nodding along. Like, oh yeah. So. Yeah, um, totally, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I just came out of a bout of
1: depression. And I just, it was like, I just had this moment the other day where I was like, I have accomplished a lot. And I have a lot of time to still accomplish more. Like just because I, I had felt so, like, I'm never going to accomplish anything because I haven't accomplished what I want to accomplish mm-hmm. now. And that, like, just was really bogging me down. And I just felt like a light bulb go off where I was like, man, I actually feel really good. This feels so good. Like, especially when you're, like, in the middle of depression, you think you're never going to feel Better. Mm -hmm. You're like, this is just how it is from here on out. I'm never going to feel okay ever again.
2: Yeah. Well, and I recently did a podcast interview for Young People in Recovery. They have a podcast and that should be out and available. And I think on YouTube, um, I believe in March or April, but in a couple months. And I was just talking about that because I've always felt that way, you know, like with the work I do now it seems stupid. It took me like an entire lifetime, basically, like when I lost my mom when I was 15 and I didn't really start doing this work until I was like 30. And it's like, oh, how obvious this is my life path. Why did it take me so long? And I hear that a lot from other people, especially in terms of recovery. I'm already 30, 40, 50, 60, and I'm still here. But I see now that Every single experience, every single menial job, every single interaction, you know, everything I experienced from 15 to 30 put me in the position to be an effective, you know, harm reductionist or whatever now. And I saw this great thing from Barbara Walters talking about. Um, you know, if you can't, don't make it in your 20s, you can make it in your 30s. And if you don't make it in your 30s, you can make it in your 40s. And if you don't make it in your 40s, you can make it in your 50s. And she keeps going on and on to the painter who didn't pick up the brush until she was in her 80s and became like one of the world's most prolific painters, you know. And it's just we have this tendency to be our own worst enemy. Mm-hmm. And that negative self-talk can keep you from progressing and growing and achieving things because you just and yeah, I know what it's like to feel worthless. <laughs> um So I've been, yeah, that's been kind of a common theme coming up that that's common for us to kick ourselves. But, you know, if you've got one foot in the past and one foot in the present, you know what you're doing to the future. I don't know. I can probably say it on the radio, but you're urinating on the, on the (laughs) present, right? If one foot in the past, one foot in the future, you're urinating on the present. Sorry if I said that completely wrong the first (laughs) try around. But, you know, we, we all do that. And, kick ourselves or worry Mm. about things to come, but then we don't get to appreciate life because we're too focused on what's already happened or what's yet to happen. And, you know, what can we really do to control those things? Yeah. And that's
1: where, well, that's where that serenity prayer comes in. And it Mm -hmm. just is so poignant every time you hear it. And I, one reason why I like that so much is I'm like, oh, I'm not the only one who feels like I should be able to control things that I absolutely can't. Yeah. So, But yeah, and especially like being pregnant, it's like I'm so focused on like, what's it going to be like? What's Mm -hmm. it going to be like? And uh, just instead of just enjoying like what my life is now before it changes completely. And also like that's when I think it really clicked like there's a whole lifetime ahead of me. Like a whole life is about to start that is so different than what I have know. So that's, even though like the pregnancy probably brought on a lot of the depression that I'd been feeling for the past few months, but uh, now I'm feeling a lot better. And it's just funny to like think about it in that way. Like, like you said, it took a whole lifetime from when your mom died to when you actually started um, doing this work. And it's like, I, you know, I feel like, oh, I have so much I still want to do in my life. And it's like, it's only just beginning, kind of.
2: Yeah, totally. And even if I never climb Mount Everest or (laughs) whatever the the bucket list items are, that doesn't take away the value from the life that I have led and the things that I do. And we all become complacent because it's our experience. So it's not necessarily that exciting, but I think to look at yourself through somebody else's eyes, that's kind of helped me a lot to really value Mm -hmm. what I do and what I've done and how far I've come and to appreciate some of the experiences in my life in a less negative way than I've maybe been carrying them. But I yeah. feel like we could do, let's call John Bruna and do a whole episode on <laughs> presents.
0: Yeah, um, totally.
2: But for another time, but definitely yeah. a great <laughs> subject. But I was really excited, you know, in the context of this beautiful new year to kind of take a look at some of the um, victories that we have experienced um, since the beginning of the COVID 19 pandemic. And so, you know, a little bit ago now, but on undes- Um, November 3rd of 2021 marked the one-year anniversary since Oregon voters passed the groundbreaking Measure 110. Measure 110 made Oregon the first state in the nation to decriminalize the possession of all drugs while simultaneously increasing access to supportive health services for individuals who use drugs. Due to this measure, thousands of people in Oregon, an estimated 3,000 plus, avoided drug arrests, which can have significantly detrimental long-term effects on individuals, with people of color often being disparately affected by drug laws and targeted by law enforcement. So additionally, because of Measure 110, law enforcement agencies can spend less time on cyclical drug cases, and due to drug decriminalization, the state of Oregon has saved $300 million in that one year from November to November. And that's now funding that didn't exist before that's being funneled directly to community organizations that provide culturally competent care to those in need. So we've saved the law enforcement and government in Oregon $300 million. And that's just dollars. Think about just like the time that they've saved, you know? Yeah, wow, that's... That's an incredible
1: amount that any state could benefit from.
2: <laughs> yeah, and this is a perfect illustration of what drug drug policy reform is all about, diverting funds from ineffective, archaic programs that generally cause more harm than good and putting that money toward evidence-based programs based in culturally competent, client-centered services provided in a non-judgmental space. The de- the idea is that people need greater access to supportive care such as behavioral health and peer support services rather than criminalization that can follow a person for a lifetime. I was just over at work doing syringe services this morning and afternoon here in Carbondale and I was talking with some folks about um, this other, I see a lot of great memes every day, (laughs) Um, and it was just about... Um, pressuring help on people and saying you need help or this is the kind of help that you need and explaining, you know, to people like why that is so ineffective. Mm-hmm. Because first of all, if we pressure people, you know, I think all of us can relate to if you're hesitant to do something and somebody won't stop nagging you about it, it's going to make you way less inclined to do it, Right. Totally. But this meme, and it was cool because it was shared by a lot of different harm reduction organizations, was also talking about how help traditionally is provided by organizations that are not trusted safe spaces for the majority of people of color, for the majority of impoverished individuals, for LGBTQ plus individuals, and for people who use drugs. These settings are not safe places. Like, Mm -hmm. we don't call 911 because we don't think of that as getting help we think of that as getting more problems and so of course that's something we've been working on you know at hierarchies harm reduction and working in collaboration with other law enforcement to build trust and to build appropriate care but like in reality a lot of people have been historically denied or alienated from the quote-unquote help that exists and so this decriminalization and organ which is modeled after, you know, what we see happening in Portugal or Switzerland or Vancouver, mm-hmm. places that have decriminalized drugs and had a lot of success in mitigating, you know, overdose and disease and crime and just all the economic costs of addiction through focusing all of the funding on treatment and, and focusing on competent, uh, you know, appropriate, relevant treatment instead of just punishment.
1: Yeah, I would definitely encourage anyone out there who is curious about, about what decriminalization is and how it's helpful to really look at what is going on in Portugal and Switzerland. And, uh, you know, like in all of the, the, these actual, you know, these countries who are actually putting this to work and you can really see how it's been effective.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I just really like what you were saying about the whole pressure piece. I was talking to my husband about that the other day with about one of my friends who just felt like one of, like one of our other friends was just like, you need to do this, you need to do that, and da-da-da-da-da, and... How she's just sort of like, whatever, man. And I just think it's so ineffective to tell someone what they should be doing, even if you don't agree with how they're living their life or what they're doing. It just doesn't help anyone or anything at all to be like, you're not doing the, You're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. Like life is just what you make it. And if you're happy, that's what's important.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, somebody was talking to me the other day about some of the verbiage in the Alcoholics Anonymous preamble saying, you know, if you are unable to, you know, basically meet these requirements and stop drinking or whatever, that it's because of a moral failing. And so she was talking about how basically that to her is saying, if AA doesn't work for you, nothing's going to work for you and you're a bad person, you know. And it's just like that's not true. Everyone's pathway is unique and there needs to be a variety of options. And we need, you know, whether it's in behavioral health, you know, substance use or just general medical care. People have the right to, you know, medically accurate information and education and they have the right to be the, you know, agents of their own health care because they are at the end of the day, the experts on their own body. Yeah, that's where it just always is so effective to say
1: everybody is different and every body is different. Absolutely. What works for me doesn't work for you. What works for you doesn't work for me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but we can all still be friends. Um, But yeah,
2: and I know, I believe we do have another uh, past Chemical World episode where we dug a lot deeper too into, you know, what exactly is decriminalization versus legalization. Because of course, the countries that have decriminalized drugs or the states, everyone does it a little different here in America. Um, And this will, come up, be relevant to our uh, next month's discussion as well. And it becomes relevant in a variety of situations. We have a type of federalism in the United States where states have more power than the federal government. Canada created their constitution right after the Civil War. So theirs is the exact opposite based on seeing how well this has worked in America to give states the power to secede and do whatever they want, basically. Um, So that's why Canada has been able to like blanketly decriminalize or criminalize certain things with, you know, Mm -hmm. their gun control, cannabis, prostitution, certain things like that that they've been able to just, like, blanket across the country do. And then you see all these, like, really weird, wonky issues in the United States, um, you know, I don't want to get too into it, but abortion care is a great example. Every state does mm-hmm. it a little different. Supreme courts get involved all the time. Cannabis is another great example where states say it's legal, but federally it's not. So mm-hmm. federal busts still go on, on grow operations. You know, it took them a long time to develop a, a banking system where dispensaries could use credit cards because it's a federal banking system. So it's like a lot of confusion there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we see drug decriminalization. And so, yeah, it's going to look a little bit different everywhere. Um, I'll come back to that and talk a little bit more about details of decriminalization and some other stuff. But I wanted to just really briefly add that um, in Oregon, due to the money saved from Measure 110, harm reduction programs are receiving more funding to provide these services. Mm-hmm. We're seeing on a national level that there's a much greater focus on services like those that High Rockies Harm Reduction provides, sterile syringe services, no. Nil- Oxone and Narcan distribution, fentanyl test strips, peer support services, because we're seeing that these are a lot more effective than just, you know, putting somebody in jail with a bunch of their friends and letting them out three days later at three in the morning. Um, but so in... Oregon, 70 organizations in 26 out of Oregon's 36 counties have already received funding, including 33 harm reduction and addiction recovery service providers, expanded access to treatment services for indigent and uninsured individuals, 52 organizations hired peer support specialists. Um, As you may know, it's a role that addiction medicine experts have long heralded as essential to one's recovery journey, 32 service providers added recovery supportive and transitional housing service. 30 organizations, increased harm reduction services, which, as you might know, include life-saving interventions like overdose prevention, access to naloxone, methadone, and buprenorphine, as well as drug education and outreach. And... Um because of communities uh, because communities of color in Oregon, like the rest of the country, are the ones that have disproportionately borne the brunt of the drug war, the Oregon Criminal Justice Commission estimated that Measure 110's passage would result in a 95% reduction in racial disparities in drug arrests. So that's still yet to be seen, but that's exciting too. And I just wanted to say I'm pulling all of this from the article that was posted on November 3rd, um, 2021 by the Drug Policy Alliance. The Drug Policy Alliance was a major spearheader of the Measure 110 campaign. Um, the Drug Policy Action, which is the C4 political arm of Drug Policy Alliance, campaigned for Measure 110. So I just want to add that the company who wrote that article also was politically involved with getting the measure passed. Mm-hmm. Um but it sounds like they've just had a lot, a lot of success and it continues to uh, be seen what, you know, real impact this can have. That would be amazing. A 95 percent reduction in racial disparities and drug arrests. That would just be because I think sometimes when you hear some of the racial data of our prison system, you know, I can't oh, I don't know disgusting. it off the top of my yeah. head. But, yeah, it's like it is it is really, really disgusting and just terrifying i mean it's very obvious when you see those numbers
1: when then people question like why would they want to def- defund the police and it's like well when you see that kind of, and uh, and of course there's so much that goes into defunding the police and I, I don't even want to get into that because i think when it comes down to it there's so many more issues than just taking money away from one place because that it needs there we still need help with figuring all this stuff out but it's like if you had lived your whole life scared of the police, you would probably feel the same way as well.
2: Yeah, but I actually think that defunding the police is like the exact opposite of what should be done. I think, I mean, obviously a lot of the programs and organizational structure, like I was saying this the other day, you know, we're trying to do all these new things with old systems in place and that's part of the problem and the disconnect from higher ups and people working boots on the ground. But I mean, if anything, I think law enforcement need more training and they need more funding and they need better programs. You know, the problem is that targeting people of color and putting people in jail for non-violent offenses for long periods of time that's a problem like I was watching the new Tiger King and uh, the guy's like I think he tried to kill a lady he wanted to kill a lady he should be in jail for the rest of his life and I'm like I don't think anyone should be in jail for something that they didn't even do like we're just conspiring to do I don't know but that's I of course I'm sure there are situations where it makes sense but I mean look at Norway is a great example. Like, you can only go to prison for seven or nine years. Like, that's the maximum term. And then here in Colorado, we have people serving decades of solitary confinement in supermax. And it's like, there's a documentary about that. And they say, we think that there might be long term mental health effects. I'm like, uh, yeah, I think there's long term mental health effects from being in solitary confinement for a month, much less. Decades, yeah. you know. Well, and that's that's why I don't really I didn't want to
1: like go into the whole defunding the police argument because it is like, I think that even people who felt that way when they get into a position where they actually need the police, they maybe tend to like feel differently. And I I agree. I don't think that it. I just don't think that. I think that there's so many problems with our system that it's not so easy to just defund the police. I think it's like a whole Thing needs to be yeah and
2: Everything there needs to change <laughs> you know there are so many issues where it's like i have opinions but i'm also not like an economist or you know a, yeah. a political science major i know there's a lot of things i don't know but i think that your point was that i think there's a big divide and sometimes people don't understand the other side is that a lot of americans do not trust the police and they don't mm-hmm. see them as somebody who's there to help them
1: it's like what you said when you're like I don't think to call the police if there's something wrong. I like that's not where my mind goes. And that's not where my mind goes even either. And like and I'm white, you know, and I don't I don't think of it as like, "Oh, they're here to serve and protect" because that hasn't been my experience, even though that's what they're there to do, you know? And and a lot of police that's why they become police is because they want to serve and protect, you know, but there's so many So much that goes into all of that, that it's... Yeah,
2: well, and I mean, I kind of think about it in the context of any other profession, too. You know, you start a job, you really like it, you work your butt off. Nobody else around you is really working as hard as you are. There's a lot of turnover rate. It's really hard to keep everyone on the same page. These little kids are screaming at you all day long. Mm-hmm. You have a hard time getting your workload done. And now your boss wants you to do somebody else's workload for less pay because that's just, I mean, this is, you know, I'm describing being a nonprofit worker, being a teacher, being a restaurant employee all of these jobs that I've had now put like now it's your responsibility to keep all this safe and to control these situations you know Mm -hmm. like there's a lot of stress in that job and they face a lot of the same issues that we all do in terms of labor shortages and things like that and workloads so I mean I don't know we're all in this together (laughs) that's all I gotta say. (laughs) And when you look at places like you know,
1: a place like New Orleans where they don't have a lot of funding for police and then you look at a place like San Francisco where they, the police are paid a living wage, the way that the police are going about helping people is completely different, you know? And so when you're not making the money that you deserve, you become resentful.
2: Yeah, whether you're a teacher, a line cook, a nonprofit employee, a cop, whatever, yeah. bus driver, city market employee. Yeah, I think there's a lot. And I think there's a lot of reasons for people to be angry and frustrated. And those city market folks are just always so nice. How do they do it? I just It's <laughs> like, like I live in Glenwood, but it just blows my mind. Like it's the same people that were here. From way before the pandemic, and they're still smiling at me every day and being super sweet. And it's just, I'm so lucky for them. Um, So, before we wrap up, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the more benefits of uh, drug decriminalization because it's interesting, um, you know, seeing what's happening in Oregon and since Measure One Tons passage, a number of states, including Washington, Massachusetts, Vermont, Maine, New York, Rhode Island, Maryland, and Kansas have introduced bills or launched campaigns to likewise remove criminal penalties for drug possession and increase access to health services. We're all kind of going towards that Portugal model, which I love to see. And, you know, it's interesting because, like I said, you know, there's a lot of confusion and questions about what decriminalization means. And while there are a lot of caveats, Colorado actually passed a similar drug decriminalization bill, which we've talked about in 2019. And that made possession of four grams or less of any Schedule One or Two drug a misdemeanor and instead of a felony. So it's similar to what's happening in Oregon, right? Like these drugs aren't completely legal, but instead of getting a felony arrest on your record, you're more likely to get a misdemeanor ticket and or referrals to behavioral health services. Um, I think it's cool that like Polis did that and nobody really seems to know about it. Like that's (laughs) just Colorado for you. Like Denver police basically decriminalized cannabis use 10 years before decriminalization actually happened in the state. So we're just like, on the back burner, just not caring, (laughs) Um, letting people do what they're going to do, right? Because that's the reality. But another one of the, you know, huge... Benefits that I see to drug decriminalization is, you know, we talk a lot about fentanyl, a lot of concerns about adulterated drugs out there, cocaine, MDMA, heroin, pressed pills that we know there's fentanyl in, right? And there have – I get asked pretty regularly if you would see fentanyl in cocaine. And there's also – I'm sorry, fentanyl in cannabis, And there have also been some kind of propaganda-ish news stories coming out, not just this year, but actually for several years on and off, um, specifically out of Connecticut, about like these Um, fentanyl-laced joints and things like that. And, you know, the general consensus in the harm reduction community is, like, we're not really buying it. Like, we don't really believe that that's happening. However, I know from experience that it's not uncommon to see cannabis laced with crack cocaine or PCP. It's just not very common to see in rural communities, in my experience. And particularly, like, Colorado is somewhere where just cannabis is very popular. But I have heard rumors of meth on cannabis. And my experience with other cannabis being laced have all been in Colorado so you never know I don't want to say like no that's not going to happen but when cannabis is legal you are way 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 less likely to find fentanyl in it because the edibles are produced in a corporate manufacturing factory Mm -hmm. the marijuana is grown and you know has to meet a lot of FDA standards Mm -hmm. and things like that so you know if you're getting it directly from the dispensary the chance of there being fentanyl in it is zero and with drugs like cannabis and LSD and psilocybin, you're just generally going to have more trusted sources. Those, the people manufacturing those drugs are going to be less likely to not care if they're killing children with their drugs in my experience (laughs) Um, and because those things are generally you know the the individual you bought it from usually made it but that is just a really cool part of how decriminalization keeps us safe you know when we have and so if we had access to a safe and legal supply of heroin or cocaine these fentanyl deaths would not be the issue that they are and I think people are really starting to understand this. Of course, word about what's happening in other countries and even other states is getting out and support for drug decriminalization, according to the Drug Policy Alliance, is at an all-time high, with a recent poll of theirs and uh, in in combination with uh, ACLU finding that 66% of Americans now support eliminating criminal penalties for drug possession and replacing them with a new approach centered in public health. How do you guys feel about drug decriminalization? Reach out to me and let me know. Hit me up at Maggie at High Rockies, If you're mad about it, if you don't like it, if you love it, if you want to see more of it, let's talk. Let's have a conversation. I would love to hear from you.
1: Thank you for bringing all of this information to light because I had no idea about the 300 million. Is that what it was? That, that Portland saved last year? That's... Just incredible. Yeah,
2: 300 million for the entire state of Oregon. Yeah, and I mean, over 3,000 awesome. lives saved by not having the burden of a felony yeah. following them. So, so cool.
1: This has been Chemical World. Uh, Chemical World is produced by Maggie and myself. And you can hear past episodes and extended versions of this episode or other episodes at kdnk.org or uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. Our next episode will be airing on kd and on Valentine's Day. Ooh, yay! <laughs> so February 14th, so at 4.30 p.m. on kd and
2: Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Maggie. Yeah, and of course, if you're interested in these kind of news stories, be sure to follow us at @chemicalworld Chemical World on Instagram and Facebook and at High Rockies Harm Reduction on Instagram and Facebook as well to keep up to date with all the changes in drug policy across the nation.
1: That's right. And you can follow Katie and Kay on Instagram and Facebook as well. And remember, you don't have to be sober
2: to keep your community clean.
0: Drugs may come and drugs may go, and that's all right, you see, experience has made me rich, and now I can use safely. It might be beer, it might be dope, it may even be caffeine, but we all have a little something that keeps us on our feet. What's important is being safe and stopping the spread of disease, you do not. To be sober, to keep your community clean. Because we are living in a chemical world, and I am a chemical girl or boy. We are living in a chemical world, and I am a chemical gender nondescript. We are living in a chemical world, and I am a chemical. We are living in a I am a chemical girl and I am a chemical girl. You know we are living in a chemical world and I am a chemical girl.